0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Ricky, head of the editorial team.
1: And I'm Darcy, and I work on the editorial
0: team here at the IAI. Today, we've got Beyond the Boundary, featuring New York Times bestselling author and clinical psychologist Lisa Miller biochemist and science communicator Nick Lane, and writer and researcher Paul Bickley. This took place in 2023 at the Hallow Festival in Hay, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So, Darcy, tell us a bit about this debate.
1: So, this debate is basically focusing on can we have a kind of scientific version of the afterlife or In a secular world, how should we kind of view what happens after death, essentially?
0: So yeah, I think this idea got thrown away uh, when we kind of, yeah, during the decline of organized religion. Yeah. Um, But I think it is coming back now. I think with the idea of consciousness not being kind of just in the brain or just identical with the brain, I think more people are becoming more open to the idea that maybe life does continue after you die.
1: I just think that it's interesting that with the with the fall of organised religion, we kind of declined the idea of exploring the afterlife, or at least what happens after death. So it kind of became this thing that didn't have any import. Because I think, behind this debate... Uh, for me, it was inspired by a really great Edgar Allan Poe quote, which goes, "And then they stole into my fancy like a rich musical note, to what sweet rest must come with the grave." And I was like, "That's a completely astounding view of death. This kind of like great sleep that happens at the end of life."
0: Yeah, it's quite it made me quite feel quite sad though. Why? I...
1: But it's but it's like a, it's almost like a beautiful view of death.
0: Yeah, but I I think. What is nothing? Can you experience nothing?
1: Well, I also, I think this this idea of, like, nothingness, like, that's that's what happens when you die. Like, to, to a degree, yes, it's like the cessation of all cortical activity and that, to a degree, is nothingness. But, like, the idea of nothingness in and of itself, if you believe that to be what happens when you die, you have to negate the entirety of your own existence because the fact that you exist now contradicts the very idea of nothingness in general.
0: Schopenhauer has a good quote as well about yeah. death, which is when you die everything else wakes up yeah or rather it never slept it's Ah. so i like the kind of you merging into the wholeness of the oneness of of it all of it all yeah Yeah. if you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers
2: now let's hand over to our host for the debate Ganesh Taylor It turns out that less than a third of those in the UK believe in an afterlife, and of those rather more believe in heaven than hell. In a scientific, secular age, stories of the afterlife strike many as empty, anachronistic wish-fulfillment. But is it a mistake to think that life is prosaic, earthly, and simply over when we die? There is, after all, no scientific explanation of consciousness nor any notion of how material matter could create experience and thought. We don't have an account of how consciousness comes into being, and while some propose that AI might at some point acquire consciousness, there are many philosophers and scientists who argue that no combination of physical machinery will ever be capable of creating thought, consciousness, and life. Have we denied the mystery of life and death because such talk has been tarred by association with specific and implausible religious beliefs? Or should we re-engage with the profound strangeness of death and accept that it is beyond our understanding? Or is the mundane and harsh reality that we are a chance combination of organic material that has a limited lifespan and uh, once over is never to return? Here to help us delve into this subject are our wonderful speakers. To my immediate left, we have Lisa Miller, who is a New York Times bestselling author uh, of The Spiritual Child, a professor in the clinical psychology program at Teachers College, Columbia University, and the founder and director of the Spirituality Mind Body Institute. To my right, we have Nick Lane, who is a British biochemist and outstanding science communicator, asking the difficult question, what is the origin of life? He is a professor of evolutionary biochemistry at University College London, and of course also a best-selling author of five critically acclaimed books on evolutionary biochemistry, which is no mean feat in my opinion. Um, We also have Paul Bickley, who is a researcher, media commentator, and author on politics, religion, and culture. He's also the acting head of research at Theos, the UK's leading religion and society think tank. So by now you're all seasoned how the light uh, gets in, goers. So you all know that first thing that happens is we have three minutes for each of our speakers to pitch on a particular question. In this context, the question is, should we re-engage with the profound strangeness of death and the afterlife in a secular age? Lisa, I'm going to ask you
3: to talk first for three minutes and tell us what you think. Thank you. So we have no way of knowing that question per se, but we have scientific evidence in three domains that suggest there is indeed continuity of consciousness, continuity of life after death. The first is from near-death experiences, when people have prospectively been identified as at-risk heart patients, been followed until tragically they flatline, and then a subset of them come back. There are consistent reports of the type of near-death experience of which many of you have heard, moving towards the light, ancestors on the other side. That's the first form of evidence. The second form of evidence is that cont- of continuity of consciousness after death is that we here walking incarnate may receive messages that otherwise could not have been known. The nature of the information was such there was no other way of transmission than it might have come from the ancestor, the deceased person. The third form of evidence for consciousness after death is when the consciousness persists and then lands in a new human body. What some cultures call past life experience, I might call it continuity of consciousness and re incarnation and in that case you have very young children who can report with enormous specificity of another time and place of which, in which they've lived which can of course be cross-validated. There is a dearth of this type of inquiry in most of the post-industrial global universities and yet there are loci where this can be found. For instance, the University of Virginia has such a center. In India there's a great number of archives. Those are three forms of evidence. The larger question which you raised so beautifully is can consciousness exist independent of matter? Is materialism as it exists, billiard balls knocking into each other, indeed true as a subset of a larger map of reality? Might materialism be one instantiation of a broader map of a consciousness-based reality in which consciousness is in us, through us, and around us. In that broader scope, after 20 years of working as a clinical scientist doing MRI studies, genotyping studies, long-term clinical course studies, there is absolutely no understanding of how the brain works. We can cite a great number of neural correlates and there is indeed a neuro-docking station of transcendent awareness. But whether the brain is, as in the 20th century, viewed as a conveyor belt that makes thoughts, like a factory, an antenna that receives thoughts from the consciousness field, or perhaps consciousness reified as synaptogenesis through transcendent practices, we don't know. But we can look at these broad experiments in aggregate, much like a Pizarro, and looking at the dots, say there is a good deal of evidence that indeed consciousness exists Independent of matter, as well as expressed in and through matter.
2: in Perfect timing. Thank you, Lisa. Um, well, Nick, what what is your take on whether or not uh, we should reengage with this ar- idea of the afterlife?
4: Well, I can't disagree with anything that was just said. Then, um, but I I don't really share that view. Um, I'm a biologist. I think about the well, I work on the origin of life and I spend most of my time trying to understand how matter comes together to make cells and it's far from just chance. There's all kinds of laws and rules of chemistry and physics and so on that give rise to metabolism, for example, as we know it. There's, now where those laws and rules are coming from, that's perhaps something we can come back to later on. But uh, how does natural selection get started? Well, natural selection involves an awful lot of death. That's the first, you know, everybody's familiar with, uh, with, with the idea um, survival of the fittest. It's an ugly kind of an idea. But nonetheless, uh, there's a grain of truth in it. And that grain effectively says that for anything to evolve and get more complex, by at least the standard rules of natural selection, the uh, stuff that's less well adapted is going to die. Um, and the world is glorious. And, and, and to my mind, at least, it, it is built on uh, an awful lot of death of all kinds of things. Now, I feel a tremendous affinity with the living world. I find affinity with bacterial cells, with, with amoeba, you name it. I, I, I find that I have something in common with them, a lot. All my biochemistry, pretty much. I don't, I, I'm not going to try and flog you this idea that we should all. I don't think that society is going to work very well if we just try and build it on our affinity with the rest of nature, especially if we're dying from COVID or whatever it may be. Um, but I do feel that consciousness is something that arises much earlier in evolution than most people would give it credit for. Um, I wouldn't like to argue, though tomorrow I'll give a talk on this and I will argue that bacteria have some form of consciousness, a very, not, nothing like we have, but nonetheless some form of a stream of uh, being, if you like. Um, Certainly, I don't think anybody would argue that dogs, for example, give every appearance of having emotions and, and, and we can communicate in one way or another. Some people would deny that and disagree with that. I think any, I don't own a dog uh, but, uh, or a cat or anything, but I think most people who have pets understand that they can communicate in one way or another. So I would see consciousness as something which is much broader than, than just humans, and death is a necessary part of living and life, and I simply don't see a need, really, for what happens now. You know, I, I'm quite happy for my life to be as good or as bad as it is here, and, and, and that's it, as far as I'm concerned. One little thing to finish with, if I've got a moment. My son was going off the other morning to do his GCSE uh, exam in something or other, and he came back in a few minutes later, and there was a, he said there's a squirrel that's fallen out of the tree and it's screaming, can I come and do something about it? Uh, and I went down with him, and uh, it was quite disturbing because it, it, the squirrel ha- apparently had fallen out of the tree and was screaming in a terrible way. And, and I thought the only thing I can do here really is bang it on the head with a rock. I don't know what else to do. And he, he didn't want me to bang it on the head with a rock. Um, so, so I kind of stood there pathetically and helplessly thinking I'm supposed to be his dad. I'm supposed to do something <laughs> helpful and reassuring here. And there's really nothing that I can actually do. Um, but I've, I also found this quite disturbing. Clearly, two things to my mind that I'm the reason I'm telling you this story. One of them is clearly that squirrel uh, was very aware of its predicament, and it had a friend that had come down the tree and which was looking on pretty nervously. As soon as we went away, perhaps its friend was going to try and do something. This was all behavior which is very clearly uh, conscious. I also had the feeling that. The, the squirrel was aware that if it didn't get out of there it would be dead very quickly those foxes in this mm. in this neighborhood and so on and it wasn't it wasn't going to last very much longer is that squirrel going for an afterlife i don't think so i see no squir- no need for an afterlife for a squirrel i don't i see its life as associated with its own brain its own body and i see no more need for an afterlife for us uh, than for mm. that squirrel
2: thank you nick Paul, oh, where, where are you at on this on this subject of uh, needing an afterlife?
5: Well, uh, I can pick up straight on that point, as it were, because I think there's clearly two sides uh, to this debate or two sets of um, foundations of values that are both mutually important. One is the question of what is true and one is the question of what is helpful or kind or... Pastoral, because even in this room, there will be people who have recently been bereaved or uh, are perhaps contemplating their own death. So that's important to talk about too. Uh, it is the case that we are leaving behind all our religious frameworks, as it were. This idea of a secular age, what Taylor called the imminent frame. Non-belief is the most obvious option for most of us. It depends slightly depends how you ask the question. Our data at uh, Theos is... about a third, only a third, uh, less than a third, uh, believing in life after death. Uh, The World Values Survey data that was released by Kings a couple of weeks ago, that's different. That's about 50-50. But I think what is also the case is that under those conditions, even the frameworks of the religious change, uh, and that's something we don't necessarily think about. So think about the standard funeral that we go to now. Um, It is almost always, with some exceptions, a celebration of life. And I think that's a tell because uh, what it says is that we really, most of us do think death is a moment to look back and not look forward. We're not thinking about sending people on an onward journey. That makes us a historical exception. Um, and it looks slightly weird from that point of view. Um, at that point, you've got to ask, well, why does that matter? What does it matter if we're historically weird? You know, um, Well, it matters if we're wrong uh, and it matters if we are um, unhelpful to people and that we're making their life harder and more difficult so just to take those two in turn i, I would i would think in terms of some kind of modified version of pascal's wager on this so pascal's wager uh so, you know you ought to uh, bet on belief in god because uh if you're right uh, on that bet then the upsides are great and the downsides are ambivalent if you're wrong on that then the upsides are um are ambivalent uh, sorry if you're if you bet the other way and you're right, the upsides are ambivalent and the downsides are terrible. Um, uh, And it seems to me that something else, there's something similar going on here. If we, we ought to talk about this, we ought to think about this, we ought to engage on this because it matters. Uh, And there are downsides uh to as it were getting it wrong how would we if there is some kind of post-mortem consciousness how are we preparing ourselves for it what if as some uh sort of uh uh, thinkers or theologians think like the moment of your death is the moment at which you become static in your kind of formation or spiritual journey and you can't as it were shift from who you are at that point Uh, i think that's important to think about um, uh, and we just want to know if it 's true so if if in this room i don 't know there was a portal appearing and people were getting pulled through uh, <laughs> and it was happening to uh somebody every minute, we would all want to know what is where are those people going where are they where are they heading um, and uh, I know that 's not the that 's as it were t- to build in an assumption about there is a consciousness going somewhere, so that 's the question of what is true, uh, but then on the question of what is Um, pastoral and helpful it seems to me that our society does find it difficult to talk about death and this is um, correlation I don't know if it's causation but that seems to become more the case as we have left behind religious frameworks Mm -hmm. so uh, the question I want to ask is what uh, what's the right response to that because we ought not to live in what uh, is it uh, um, Ernest Becker called that this kind of anxious denial of death now he said I think you know as we've lost religion we've given up the necessary illusions i would not i'm not with ernest becker on that i don't think those illusions are uh, sorry i don't think um those are illusions i don't think hope is an illusion um and i don't think it's necessary to say that Uh, but i agree with his analysis that we're struggling to handle the subject of death so I think we do need to address it. And um, I, by the way, I don't see it as a, a kind of property of theology or philosophy as opposed to science. I think it's something that people can work on together.
2: So that, that's actually leads nicely into the sort of first theme of this this debate, which is supposed to be about, you know, when one says the word afterlife, I think most people immediately assume it's a religious concept, right? And And the first sort of question here is actually, could it be part of a scientific account? and what could that look like? And I'd like to invite you all, particularly you Nick, because I'm <laughs> curious. I should also say disclaimer, I'm a scientist too, and I'm a biologist as well. So I, I, have, I have a sort of perspective on this thing as well, but I'd really love to see what we all think could actually happen in this. Like how can an afterlife exist scientifically speaking? And what, what might that look like? Like what is an afterlife really in that secular view?
4: I think the first thing to realize about science is that there is no monolithic view of science and we don't know. Uh, you started out saying we don't know what consciousness is. Uh, and that's true. I think we have ideas what it is, but nobody can agree. No two people working on consciousness will agree about what it is anyway. So to say we haven't a clue is wrong, but to say that there's an agreed <laughs> um, solution to it, if you like, is is, is wrong. Now, uh, I suppose if, if there is, from my... Personally, I see it as tied to organic matter, as tied to the, the, the to cells and to, to animals. But if, if it were not, um, then I suppose the, the idea of panpsychism, that consciousness is linked in some way to a property of matter that we know little about, and there's plenty we don't know about matter still. So it's, it's easy to put two mysteries together and then s- think that we've solved something. But I know a lot of people, and perhaps some people in this room, um, would, would would see consciousness not as a property of a body, but something which is linked then with the wider universe, with fields of some description. Uh, to my mind, um, electromagnetic fields are an extremely important part of consciousness. There's been very little uh, explored so far. I think that the 21st century biology will be a lot of it about the biology of fields, I would see those fields as not necessarily going very far beyond the limits of the boundary, and I personally don't see those fields as linking with the universe. But some very good scientists, and I notice Rupert Sheldrake is here, and I've probably not captured anything like his view on this, but it, perhaps it would be something closer to that. I do not think that we have um, a scientific answer to that question. I have a bias. Other people have different biases, and we don't know the answer. But it's not impossible.
2: I mean, I have to ask you all, because obviously you've all touched upon the consciousness thing. Can I just clarify, when we talk about an afterlife, are we literally talk, like, is that an afterlife for the consciousness or is that an afterlife for another part of ourselves? Like, is, is it specifically about the, our consciousness as we recognize it? Is that, is that a consensus or is that even up for debate?
5: Uh, well, there are all sorts of language issues, and uh, but what I think is part of what's happening here is that we think that we've kind of dumped the, f- the religious framework, um, uh, that there's something inside us that's going to continue beyond that. But I, I think that carries on, and I think that carries on in all sorts of ways. So we have that kind of... Um, the, the thing, we set up this debate by saying, like, we, like, I can't remember the phrase, but, you know, kind of risible religious ideas. And uh, the, the, the model for that might be something like, uh, there's this immortal thing in us that will outlast this mortal thing, which is our body. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think that is kind of rolling forward in the in the consciousness debate. I use the word consciousness because it's kind of, I think it's more accessible. Soul has its own connotations, right? Um, uh, but uh, for me, uh, I think, um, and I speak as, as a Christian, uh, what I read in my own tradition is that the body is very important. So I'm unwilling to, as it were, make that move. I think it. I don't think it's. I don't think it's a true. Uh, well, I don't think it's a fair representation of the centre of my own tradition. I think it's a kind of bastardization of it. Uh, that there's this immortal thing in us which is spinning out in one direction or the other. Um, so, it, like uh, what Nick's saying about the the importance of the body and it uh, and whatever it is, our consciousness. I think consciousness probably gets to that e- idea better than soul Our, so we we with the, with the language of soul we're trapped in that absolute distinction between the flesh and this thing inside us
3: so if you ask a clinical scientist what's the difference between religion and spirituality, we would use a twin study. Using a twin study, twins raised together, twins raised apart, factoring out their commonality as a function of genes and environment, we can determine the extent to which any human trait is inborn or environmentally formed. Religion is a gift of our parents and grandparents, our community, religion is 100% environmentally transmitted. We might choose a religion and immerse ourselves. Spirituality is innate. Every single one of us is born with an innate seat of spiritual awareness. How much so? By the time we're adults, 30% innate. It is our birthright. And yet, two-thirds environmentally formed. For many, the two-thirds is the rich embrace of a religious tradition. For others, it is through art and poetry. But every one of us is born a spiritual being. Now, let's take that down one more level to MRI studies. What is the inheritance? that is ours, that is innate, our birthright. There is a neuro docking station, an innate seat of transcendent awareness with which we are all endowed. In a culture that has silenced multiple forms of knowing, multiple organic epistemologies, we don't hear much in K-12 or in the boardroom about the deep neuro seat of transcendent perception. But you are not an innately spiritual being due to your belief but rather due to your ability to perceive and know. This is a form of human perception. At the inner table, we have a logician. We have, of course, a skeptic, who's most welcome. We have an empiricist, a mystic, and intuitive. And when we can bring all knowers into tandem, we see in our MRI studies interconnections, myelinating the tracks, highways, between forms of knowing for a more innovative, situationally aware, creative brain, this is a room full of artists and writers. You have a highly interconnected brain. I might even venture to guess that the muse or some form of transcendent knowing may have informed one of your creations. If you ask scientists, (laughs) if you ask a scientist, 70% of scientists who have made a meaningful contribution in their field report that while the rollout of science, perfectly good lens, was quite logically driven, The inspiration, the question through which they broke ground was a proverbial apple on the head from here. It was a form of transcendent experience, dream, mystical experience, synchronicity. We are knowers in multiple forms and when we own all forms of knowing, we are ready to move forward. You will not have the problems we have now, new generation. You won't need to solve them. They won't happen in the first place.
2: yeah, I mean, feel free to jump in if, if you
4: have. Um, I mean, I, uh, again, I completely agree. You know, science to me is a very creative uh, endeavour, far more so perhaps than most non-scientists would assume and also than society would give it credit for. And to me, uh, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of my day is trying to imagine how things might be and occasionally something pops into my mind and I don't know where it comes from. And this is what you're calling transcendence. I'm putting it very badly, but... So I'm not disputing at all that these things exist and are real and feel very real. But this world around us, all, all you guys out there, uh, you're not out there, you're in here. I have constructed you in my brain. There is no, you know, any tree that I see over there, everything, everything I see in the world around me, you're not physically in my head. What's in my head is a bunch of neurons, a bunch of electrical wiring, and so on, and, and it's put together in a way that we can barely understand, and it constructs a world. Uh, we interact with that world during early development. We walk into trees, we hurt ourselves, we, we, we figure out that that is not moving, it's bigger than me, and it hurts. Um, and, and, and so we, we piece together the world, and if you keep someone in a, I mean, apparently this kind of thing happens, keep someone in a dark room until they're six or something, they never can see properly because they, you know, the, the, the neuron, the synaptic connections in the mind is too late for them. That plasticity of forming the links to understand what you're seeing is too late. So if the mind, and clearly it is, because it is for absolutely everyone here, capable of constructing this astonishing world, what a beautiful part of the world that we're in. You know, we, we are able to construct all of this in our heads and we can agree about what's out there. Um, so what happens when some of this goes wrong? I know for a fact that my mind is capable of constructing an amazing world. It doesn't surprise me very much that it's also capable of constructing all kinds of horrors, uh, all kinds of uh, all forms of me- you know, mental derangement in one way or another, and it will it happen to me? I don't doubt it. So, I don't see a need again to believe that it's coming from somewhere else. I see my own mind as capable of doing things that I cannot understand but it doesn't mean to say it's coming from over there it means it's coming from in here to my mind
2: i mean i find you know, feel free to clap feel free to clap sorry i didn't mean to stop that i'm 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 sort of struck that you all you've all immediately gone into this uh, well it must be something that you're all aware of but that the afterlife is just about consciousness that there's some sort of a sense of like the, an identity that goes on i'm i'm struck that no one talks about an afterlife in a in specifically here we're talking about what would an afterlife look like in a secular world right and i was expecting at least one of you to say well of course you know um our bodies the atoms in our bodies go on in in the form of other organisms and you know there there are ways in which we could sort of secularize this idea of continuity right um, but I'm struck that none of you said that, so I'm... I'm well,
4: this here. is the, the, the Lion King version, really, isn't it, of the circle of life? And it's, a very, beautiful, it's well. a very beautiful idea, and I do subscribe to that. I love the idea that all my atoms are going to be consumed and distributed around the world. One of my favourite lines of poetry, and I'm going to get this wrong, but it's from A.E. Houseman, one of, from, who was from these parts, from a Shropshire lad... Uh, and 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 someone uh, some some boy dies and he's thrown overboard and 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 the final line of this poem is and and he wears the turning globe it's just a a beautiful line that that now he's become part of the planet part of the oceans part of everything and that's probably as close to spiritualism as i get really (laughs) i I suppose
5: i wouldn't i wouldn't buy that really as a as a uh not because not because that. i mean uh it, that is in in its in its in it, in its abstraction it's that's a beautiful way to think about uh the loss of a life yeah uh, but it doesn't work for the squirrel um and it doesn't work for those because like, the squirrel this, is not intelligent enough to understand its uh, place in... well i, the I mean in, in the sense of the tragic outcome of the yes. uh, of the squirrel's experience or indeed more to the point. Our own tragic outcomes. I, I, I just think, I it kind of feels. Um, I mean, but partly, you're part just saying. Um, you, maybe you should have talked about that. I, I can't. My instinct is not to go to that because it, it feels like a false comfort. Really, to say you know, there's a, there's a, you know, you were your your atoms will continue to exist. But you, you exist. did say
4: earlier on though about it's either true or it's comforting. You gave them as a choice almost. Uh,
5: well, I, I, I as it were, want both of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think both. Well, I. I I acknowledge that they can be intention but that both both are important Uh, so and it's for the reason that that is that is a that is a cold comfort Um, it seems to me Mm. I mean you know um,
3: so you are a knower and I invite you into your own knowing may I have 60 seconds of course okay I this is a 60 second inner thought practice I'm going to invite you to clear up your inner space with four breaths and, and invite you to close your eyes Do this. I invite you in your inner chamber to set before you a table. This is your table. And to your table, you may invite anyone, living or deceased, who truly has your best interest in mind anyone living or deceased who truly has your best interest in mind. And with them all sitting there, ask them if they love you. And now you may invite your higher self, the part of you that is so much more than what you may have done or not done, anything you have or don't have, your true higher self and ask you if you love you. And now finally, you may invite your higher power, however you know, whatever is your word, universe, force, nature, God, Hashem, Allah, your higher power, and ask if they love you. And now with all of those people sitting here, right now, what do they need to share What do they need to tell you now? What do you need to know?
5: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
3: And when you're ready, I'll invite you back. This is your birthright. This is your inborn, awakened brain. It is yours. It can never be taken away from you. That is your seat of transcendent awareness. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um,
2: I think that we should move on to the next theme, but sort of carry that through somewhat. If possible, I mean, let, okay, let's just ask this. Do we think that we will ever make sense of death in the afterlife? Like, is it, is it possible to make sense of that? Is there, is there room for that? You know, I think, Paul, you mentioned that, you know, the way we live our secular lives now, there's not much in the way of processing for these kinds of things. And I think actually the fact that there's so many of us in this room, it might actually attest to the fact that there is some sort of need to process death and what does death actually mean. So, yeah, do you think we will ever do that? And what are the frameworks for doing that beyond religion? That's that's the the question in this mm. in this debate, right? Uh,
5: so I think um, uh, I think there there is uh, in in the in the framework of. Uh, even in the framework of science we have to uh, we have to uh as it were uh, deploy that in a generous way uh so that there is uh i think um something about humility of like holding your hands up and saying why well, actually this is not a com- this is not a simple thing it's a, it, you know it's 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 a contested thing it's um uh, a very complex thing it's something we feel we feel very strongly as well as uh, think about hard um, and um, I this is slightly unkind but uh, I think there's something about who do you want at your bedside when the time comes, is it a Florence Nightingale or is it a Daniel Dennett uh, do you know what I mean, there's, there's a sense of <laughs> well actually that, I, I,
4: I, I know Daniel Dennett and I would love it if it was up <laughs> there we go,
5: there's a <laughs> fair, fair enough, I asked the question <laughs> uh, but there is um, uh, in, in short no we're not going to answer it But we shouldn't turn off the question, as it were. Uh, There's no simple answer, but we should continue to pursue, continue to wonder, continue to explore, um, uh, and do so deliberately, and in a conscious way, in society, given permission for that. Uh, Because, I mean, we've uh, published on this, there are whole issues around death preparedness. People just don't take take it seriously. Uh, We tend to, as it were, manage it away and pretend that we are immortal. Uh, We're not. Uh, and i think that our as it were departing from religious frameworks is part of that story uh, it's because we it is so bleak it, um uh, and our, our background assumption is like i think even for the religious we find it hard to step away from it it's the probably nothing um and that is that is a bleak kind of picture because all of your consciousness all of your experience all of your relationship all of your learning all of your creativity if that sinks to nothing then that seems to me like a big deal i do feel bad about that i do feel sad about that. And I'm probably likely to try and push that away as hard as possible. Uh, And I just think we will be left as a society with no good ways of engaging. We won't be able to come to peace with death.
4: I mean, I think in some sense, you can turn some of that on its head. So I don't, you know, not many of us worry about what was out there before we were born. But there's been, you know, four billion years of life on Earth before we were born and presumably death will be something like that. It will just go on and you won't be aware of it or part of it in any way that your atoms were part of it before as they were afterwards. So I don't know that we're afraid of not being anymore, so much as we we really don't like the idea that (laughs) our lives, which we generally cling to, we we don't like the idea of dying... We don't like the idea of being ill. We don't like the idea of suffering. We don't like seeing it happen to the people around us. We know it's going to happen to everybody. And it is terrifying. It is a horrible thing. And it does define humanity in in many ways. And you're quite right that we have to find ways of dealing with it in a better and more humane way as a society, because I think we don't do it very well. We've become almost estranged from it. And I I, I couldn't agree more with all of that. But. Let's just assume that we don't worry about an afterlife, that we, we try and live our lives as well as we can here now. Uh, and what we do in our lives then has the meaning to the people around us. And, you know, I, I, I want to try and help not only my family and the people I love, but I teach in the university and I want to help the students. But more than that, society's in a, really right up shit creek right at the moment, <laughs> as far as I can tell, and we, 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 we've got to somehow Rework how we engage with each other and re-engage with everything and 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 so the time is not to worry about You know what happens after my death or something so much as what can I do while I'm alive? Yeah, yeah, absolutely
5: I I mean I I, I Couldn't agree more some people indeed might be comforted by the prospect of no eternal self-conscious reality So, um, yeah, I couldn't agree more with that.
3: May I? So the same neuro-docking station which we just engaged through which you connect relationally to the transcendent is the same neuro-docking station through which you feel that sacredness in the love for one another. So UK, you are the relational capital of Earth. You are our model around the Earth of grace, of courtesy, of connection. And where- I didn't notice. That <laughs> <laughs> You'll come visit us. <laughs> the very same neuro docking station of relational spirituality in the vertical sense is that engaged in the horizontal sense. Love of brother, love of sister, love of neighbor. And when we look at all of the forms of spiritual life as they are instantiated and in practiced, and how they contribute to the thickening, the strengthening of the cortex across the regions of the awakened brain, The one that most strengthens the cortex of the awakened brain is love of neighbor and altruism. This is where the humanist and a devoutly religious person meet. You are actually loving from the same seat of awareness. So the first thing we would say is that there's one spiritual brain and we all have it. There's of course individual difference and we can strengthen different components, but there is in every single one of us a natural awakened brain. And love of neighbor is a beautiful expression of that.
2: I think we have a few moments left and I'm sort of getting the sense here that perhaps in this very specific context of discussing whether or not there is room in a secular society Mm. for an afterlife, I think we've managed to agree that certainly having better frameworks for um, getting comfortable with and processing how the existence of death affects us and how we prepare for that and how we manage that is something that we clearly need to uh, improve upon. I think that's fair to say that we've all kind of agreed upon that. But I'm also getting the sense that none of you have said, well, yes, of course we can have a secular sense of of the actual afterlife in in a, in a a specifically secular way, right? Like in a non-religious sense.
5: Well, what what people do, of course. So uh, secularisation is a trend, right? Uh, and it just it, it's trying to capture all kinds of change, um, uh, and very clearly, like people, like this is Taylor's thing of the imminent frame. Like there, there is there is there is uh, as it were a um, gravitational pull uh, towards uh, I don't know what the right word a materialism a uh, um, uh, yeah uh, and that that seems to push against that idea it does it does seem to push against what of course happens in the event is that people make up all sorts of oh that's the slightly jaded way to put it we ch- we choose all sorts of things in which to believe and shape our our life around um i suppose the uh, the most uh, in the sec- in the imminent frame the most natural thing to do is basically say what Nick said which is like just focus on now and just get on with now, and make it as good as possible um so and that's 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 the reality but I don't think yeah I do think there is a tension like once you what but it's not to do it's not to do with religion so much as a, a belief of what human beings are and whether and whether that's um uh, uh, and here to describe them neutrally just just quite a a, a narrow a, a narrow view of that 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 physicalism view or whether there is something that's that's pushing and expanding beyond that um and whether there's any evidence for that um but i think right now the 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 picture is that the more secular we become the less likely we be are to believe that there's any kind of post reality
3: may i comment on that? that we're in an era i would agree with you of increasing radical materialism and so much so that it's in the air and water of our universities, so much so it's like a fish in water. Where do I live? I live in radical materialism. What is the problem with radical materialism? Well, from a functional point of view, it's making our young people sick. The rate of death by suicide out gains any other pathway to death between 18 and 25. The rate of death by suicide is greater than the rate of death by COVID or cancer or auto accident. And it is shown statistically to go hand in hand, the surge in the diseases of despair with the rapid fall off in family faith tradition, personal spirituality with or without religion. If you look at the epidemiological data, a strong personal spirituality, I turn to my higher power for guidance in times of difficulty, nature is my sacred home, is associated with an 80% decreased relative risk of addiction. When spiritual life is shared, there's an 82% decreased relative risk of completed suicide, the pandemic, in post-industrial Gen Z. from a functional point of view, we are not built to be radical materialists. We are dying because of that. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's my view. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that a, a anybody
4: is particularly comfortable with that, and this is a problem with society, is that we, you know, the, 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 kind of the, the standard selfish man model of economics has us all as consumers, and we're supposed to get happiness from consumption, and we don't. And that's, you know, that's pretty clear, that that's, you know, better than being poor or being starving or whatever it may be but in terms of is it the radical materialism that makes us unhappy uh, yes probably th- there's some substance in that but but um you were talking about suicides and drug addictions and uh, you know, uh, there, there, there are I, I don't work on this but i, I know uh, there are books like the spirit level for example that, that argue in effect that inequality in society is one of the biggest drivers towards all of those things. And the United States and Britain are two countries which are pretty (laughs) unequal.
3: Well, that's a very good point, and, you. Yeah, When they're looked at simultaneously, when you look both at SES and personal spirituality, holding both at once, you see there's an independent, profound protective benefit of spirituality, and that exists in very poor communities. In fact, yes, the protective yes. benefits are greatest I, again, in the States, in the poorest communities. We, it, it's
4: all here in our heads, there's no doubt about that. Um, but, but the question is, you were saying earlier on, is it, is it true, is it, is it cold comfort or is it true? I Have all of these I I, one of the conversations that I most regret ever having had in my life was with my grandma when she was I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to tell you anyway when when I was about 16 and um, and and she had had a series of um, minor strokes at that point and 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 was a very religious lady Um, and we were talking about God and I told her that I didn't believe in God and she was appalled. We'd had a long conversation. And, and you know, she was saying, well, God is my conscience. He speaks to me in my head. And I said, well, yes, I have, I have voices in my head as well. But to me, it's just my conscience. It's just something my brain is telling me. My grandma had a stroke a, a couple of weeks after that and, and, and died. And I blamed myself for years thinking that I had led to just, just you know, a, a, hor- a horrifying turnover in her mind that just drove her to, apoplexy uh, in the old in the old sense of the word you know looking back, I don't know if I did or not I don't blame myself anymore because I don't we were simply talking a different language we were talking about the same thing but using different words for it and what horrified her was that I had said I don't believe in God even though I said I still had the same voices that she had so I learned a lesson from that, I suppose, and the lesson I learned is that it can be deeply, deeply harmful and upsetting to people to challenge their beliefs in a way that they are so central to their lives that taking them away or challenging them is not humane, is not a good thing to ever do. Um, But it it still doesn't mean that, that she was right, which is to say, I still have that voice in my head that tells me what my conscience is um, and so for me it's called comfort I get no comfort from whether there's a God or not you, you know you, you mentioned Pascal's wager I'll be the first one to walk through the, the door to find out what's going on I, I don't believe it and, and if it turns out that I'm completely wrong and I really screwed all of this up then fine I, I, I will suffer in hell for all of eternity but but <laughs> I don't want to believe in a God that would make me do that anyway. Uh, uh, In hell, I will be challenging him on it.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, then don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit, obviously, ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.